everybody, it's Thomas, and we are now going to go over chapter 8 of Bavinck's The Christian Family. Now, uh, this chapter is long also, but I really hope to not take two hours on it for everybody's sanity. So he begins, the first section is on sexuality. And uh, I actually read over this in two parts with my wife, and it's been a couple days, so this is not as fresh to me as it usually is, so please forgive my um, kind of trying to read as I go to refresh myself here. So uh, Bavink says, with the institution of marriage, therefore God immediately pronounced the blessing of fruitfulness, because the command is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We spread, propagate the human race to expand the kingdom of God. Bavink says, God created human beings from the beginning as man and woman so that they might multiply and in this way fill the earth and subdue it. Sexual difference and sexual relations therefore rest in God's arrangement and are acceptable to him. Uh, that would be a pretty st strong statement against transgenderism. Not only that, everything that we face today, homosexuality, um, effeminacy, all of that. Um, and Bobbitt goes on to say that this cuts off all asceticism at its root. And he touches on that in a couple different of the earlier chapters, you know, that we shouldn't go off on our own, not expect to be married, kind of live a solely contemplative life and um, yeah to not have any duties and responsibilities to society and family uh, that is not what what God has called us to even if you're single that's not what God has has called you to and I think many single people um, especially those who are you know advancing in years and if they are satisfied and happy and have no desire to be married or have children, I think that oftentimes in the church and elsewhere they will find ways to still be um, with those younger than them to, uh, you know, children to, to help them out, uh, maybe involved in teaching in some way. Um, and of course, they're still going to be fellowshipping with the rest of the saints. And so, you know, singleness is not solitude it's not supposed to be that's for sure and most everybody is going to get married uh, get married be fruitful multiply for god's glory um let's see he says in this context talking about asceticism we are to understand that school of thought that ascribes great inherent moral value to abstaining from various natural things like food, drink, marriage, sexual relations, etc., and considers this abstinence a more direct and safe way to perfection than being preoccupied with various earthly concerns. It always proceeds from a stronger or weaker dualism, that is, from a certain opposition between spirit and matter, and is guided by the idea that matter, if it is not particularly sinful, is nonetheless inherently unclean, something profane, something belonging to a lower order. But scripture proceeds from another principle. It teaches that the earth, no less than heaven, was created by God. 
and that matter, soul, and body are all of divine origin and therefore are not inherently unclean, right? They were good. God pronounced it all as good. He's given us dominion over all of his creation because it is all good and it can all be used and is, it is our duty to be used and developed for God's glory. Um, it is sin that has made these things unclean, our sinfulness, um, not our creatureliness. If by simply being creatures we were sinful, then there's no real way of avoiding um, the conclusion that God, by the very act of creating, was, was committing a, a, a sinful act, or at least an act that necessarily entailed sin and, and evil. Um, so we don't, we don't want to go down that road. Um, I'll look up a Bible verse here. I don't have my Bible open. <laughs> Uh, this has got to be Philippians, right? No, Colossians. Okay, that's right. Um, you know, the, the, the passage in Colossians 3, in uh, verse, I'll just read 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, uh, sitting on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so when it says not, you know, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth, and when you go to um, Paul's teaching, and he says, you know, was First Corinthians seven. Uh, you know, he says, "Don't." You know, the person who's not married is freed from you know worldly concern. Um, you can begin to put those two things together and conclude, well, you know, there's it's better to not be married. It is a straighter way to heaven. It is an easier way, right? The more I am disentangled from the things of the earth including marriage and sex and people, <laughs> um, the holier I can become. But what is holiness, right? What, what, what does that look like? Well, in that mentality, it's holiness is almost just never doing wrong and always reading your Bible. But that's not what the full total, uh, totality of, of righteousness is. You know, it's hard to bear the fruit of the Spirit if you're somewhere in a cave all the time, um, you know, love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, it requires you being put through the crucible a little bit and actually doing hard things with other people, with other sinners, and being the body of Christ, developing one another. And for most, the first and foremost place to do this, to help others and to be helped, is in your own family. Between the husband and wife, that, that, that should be the preeminent um, place for that. Sadly, it usually isn't, or people avoid it, or don't enter marriage for that reason. They don't look at marriage as a sanctifying institution, which it is. They look at it as, yeah, I mean, just merely an outlet for, for sex that is approved by God, or they look at it as a necessary evil almost, just to, you know 
even just have tax benefits or just to settle down, you know, just settle down because it's what we're supposed to do, but there's no joy in it. But that's because we've lost what God has um, ordained in marriage, the goodness and beauty of it. And if you go on down to verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3, it clarifies for us the things of the earth. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Now you can say, well, this is the members that are on the earth. It doesn't say uh, the things on the earth. But the two things are connected. What are the things on the earth? Because we are sinful and we're in a fallen world. Fornication, it says, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And then it says to put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And it goes on to put, it says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, some of those fruits of the spirit, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice it's always about one another. You can't love, you can't do these things outside of the context of one another. What is the context here? Well, it it, it certainly includes the church, but it's more than that. Let me keep reading. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then what's the very next section? Verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Uh, And it goes on with bond servants, and it says, Whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And then there's a word to the masters over the bond servants as well. So, you know, the context of putting on the new man and growing in wisdom and knowledge, the Christian home is, is right in the midst of that. With these simple, basic instructions to the wives and the husbands and the children uh, and the fathers. Uh, and bond servants and masters, you can relate that you know, to the employees and employers and, it, you know, all of that. So it's an it's a all-encompassing civil society thing, but it starts in the home and it goes to the church and it spreads all the way out into society. Um, so again, putting to death the things that we should put to death are, are, are sinful things, the flesh, the lusts. But setting your mind on things above and not on things on the earth does not preclude thinking about getting married and having children and raising them up because Paul commands that we do that. Nowhere does he say to put off these things 
We are to put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and so on. But we're not to put off marriage and family and sex and food and drink. Because those are good gifts from the Lord. The Garden of Eden was full of, you know, you have to take this in, in, the, in the context of it being a perfectly sinless thing, but it was like a big party where everybody's naked. <laughs> um, and there's overflowing abundance. And what is the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, and so joy and laughter and family are good. Uh, that's what we want. There's not a, a dour... Um, you know, mischaracterization of the Puritan mentality that we should have. We should be full of, of, of joy and, and gladness. And the best Puritans and the best Christians throughout history have been. All right, let me knock out some Bob Inc. Or we will be at two hours here. <laughs> um, he references First Timothy 4.4. 4, where, you know, it says every creature of God is good and nothing is to be rejected, but to be received with thanksgiving. Um, so that's also good. Uh, a lot of things I just touched on, he touches on. Um, he says, on the other hand, scripture also avoids libertinism. That is every form of striving to make the flesh independent from the higher, uh, sorry, independent and higher than the spirit. So you can do the reverse and have an error in that direction, the other ditch, right? Where, okay, I see that God redeems body and soul. I see that the whole earth is going to be renewed as well as, you know, we're receiving a new heavens, a new earth. So it's both. And so you can almost, when you first uh, discover that the things of the earth themselves are good too, you can elevate them in an unholy, unrighteous way. So is it, you know, give, give a concrete example here. Um, is it better to spend an hour every day and prioritize that in Bible reading and prayer? Or is it better to spend an hour every day uh, prioritizing um, exercise, physical bodily exercise? Well, I think ideally, if you can do both, you would try to do both. But what's more important? Well, ultimately, uh, all things being equal, if you will, um, of course, reading the Bible and prayer is, is, is more important. And scripture says bodily exercise profits, you know, a bit, a little, but, but uh, the word of God and holiness and right living is, is profitable for all things. So there's a pecking order there. Um, you know, you can be a man who stays in great physical shape, who can do all kinds of things with and for your family, you know, uh, be a very good uh, handyman and um, really invest time in doing all those sorts of building projects and uh, hunting and fishing and all of this, but if you don't read your Bible, if you don't pray, um, you're not leading your family well. And if you have to pick one or the other, now I don't think you can do that. I think we have to be godly in all in both areas. But there is a priority. Um, so if you're going to 
better way to put it, if you're going to prioritize one or the other, prioritize the Word of God. Prioritize studying and praying and leading your family first and foremost in the Word. Now, if you're lazy and trying to read the Word to your family, you're going to undermine your own authority because you're going to be a poor example of what Scripture calls us to, right? Work hard. Um, earn your own living, you know, by the work of your hands and the, the words of your mouth or whatever it may be, you know, earn some income, provide food, um, you know, def self-defense for your family. With these riots, you know, I, I sh probably should have done this already, but I'm, I'm definitely um, looking at getting a, a, a handgun and, uh, you know, I've got various self-defense weapons, but, you know, I just realize more and more you're at a serious disadvantage without a gun. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's just something which, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not going to go so far and say that it's a sin not to have a gun, but um, you have to read the winds that are blowing. And when you look at the unraveling of society, I, I just think it behooves most of us who have, who are men, and especially when we have families to, um, to take this very seriously and think about it because you, you, you clearly relying on the police, first of all, it's going to do you no good anyway if someone's breaking in your house and is intent on killing you because the police are going to magically show up. But, um, well, we don't need to belabor the point. The point is these are things which we have to, as heads of our household as men, think about. And so you can't um, put those to the side those practical things and say this has this hath nothing to do with spiritual matters this is only things of this world and you know really holy people just trust god and don't have to worry about that that's garbage that's garbage you know scripture talks often about having fortified walls and cities and a foundation that cannot be shaken uh you know and, and the strong man breaks into the man's house and uh, you know, the walls are toppled over by the enemies and, and, and God is our strong high tower. So, you know, th this is just baked in. Everybody understands, you know, wh why do we lock our doors at night? Because there's evil out there, because it's a self-defense measure. You know, why do you lock your possessions in your car if there's something you're leaving while you're going to the store? So um, we have to think about those things. We have to realize that we live in a very blessed nation um, such that we don't often have to do some of the very difficult things that many others have to do, but yet there could come a day or a time or a situation or a season where things are in such turmoil that, look, it's going to be up to you, and if you don't know how to do it, you're going to be up the creek. And uh, I'm not super great at some of the handyman type stuff, so I, I'm behind the curve. I'm not just pointing the finger at others. I'm pointing the finger at myself, too. Um doesn't mean you just drop everything else you're doing and, and all of a sudden you invest all the time in the world and in, in upping your ability in these type of things. Um, but it doesn't mean it needs to be something you're, you're working towards and working on over time. And uh, what's, what is good is where the body of Christ can help each other out with this too. Not everybody is going to be uh, Bob Vila, you know, or Tim the Toolman Taylor. Um, it's just reality. And uh, not every man, frankly, has to be like that. But... Um, 
I think some basic skills and competency, competencies are good, and uh, thank God for those who do know how to do that well and spend a lot of their time, or that's their actual job and, job and occupation, and um, their kindness in sharing their gifts, either by building something for you or, or best of all, helping you learn how to do stuff for yourself. Um, you know, like teachers may teach make money doing that for a living, but they'll also give free advice. It's not like, well, no, I'm not going to share my uh, wisdom with you unless you're paying me. Um, likewise, those who work well with their hands are usually pretty generous with um, uh, helping others increase their ability too. And, and so vice versa, those who labor more in um, hands-on work and enjoy that more and are less inclined to contemplative um, thinking and deep analytical thought and um, studying vigorously it just isn't something that comes as naturally to them and they're just frankly not as gifted at you know at, at that um they shouldn't just cast aspersions upon those who do labor in that field as eggheads <laughs> uh even if we are kind of eggheads sometimes <laughs> um just as we who do more of our time some of our time in study that's more of our job um shouldn't look at those who work with their hands as just, you know, dummies, um, you know, mules or something. Just they work hard, but they can't think. Um, that, that, that blue collar, white collar divide is, is, is not good. We all need a little bit of, of both in us, even if our strengths are primarily in one or the other. And we need to be able to help one another. And the larger context that I'm trying to bring out in all this is both are important both are valuable both are as originally created good and righteous and in some ways there wasn't you know when adam was working in the field in the garden and naming the animals and you know if the fall didn't happen when he was making up his life um before the fall happened you know there would have been no question like, well, man, I should just really stop all these things and sit down and think about God more. No, it, it was never like that from the beginning. <laughs> and I, I just don't see in Scripture that the, the, the telos, the end, is going to be that. Um, some stuff I read, I'm just like, maybe that's not what is intent, in, intended to be saying, but it's like this 24-7 Sunday morning worship service. And I'm just trying to say, you know, that is... A blessed time on Sundays, even with the kids and the, the fatigue that we often have here below and, and perfected worship without that struggle <laughs> with the kids and, and the noise and the distractions and our sinful hearts and, and all of that to just worship God and see him face to face and to to know him as he knows us as we can as creatures. And, and, and all of that is I can't wait. To be saved, to sin no more, and to worship the Lord and fall before him. But, you know, we're not like the creatures in, in, in glory, the, the 24 um, creatures, as it says in Revelation, who you know, hide with wings to cover their face, and with two that cover their face, two that cover their uh, whatever legs, and two that cover their, their, their feet. Um, we're not made as creatures that merely and only worship the Lord and and in that sense where we're just falling on our faces before him we are also made in his image to bear his his uh, creative power his his dominion 
there's still going to be a creation to exercise dominion over. Um, and we will do it as God's people, as the bride of Christ, but we will still do it. Um, and it, it would take a lot to persuade me that, um, you know, in heaven there will be, that will not happen in any way or any shape or form. Now, the fact that we're the bride of Christ, that Christ is the Lord, uh, you know, and King and, and the heavenly groom, uh, will that take on a different uh, complexion? Absolutely. Um, I don't think we're going to have families as we have them now and, and marriage and given a marriage and, and, and babies in heaven, newborn babies in heaven. Um, but, I, you know, the, we're still going to be involved with doing all sorts of things as God has been involved in all sorts of things, as even the angels have been involved in all sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I think it's important to, to labor that point because we can fall off the ditch, I think, and just think we're playing, you know, strumming har uh, harps in heaven on clouds before the Lord forever. And I don't mean to ridicule those who, who picture it that way, but is that really a blessed position? Is that really wonderful to not have uh, the joys of creation and the earth to, to work in and develop and labor and sport and recreation and food and laughing and, and, and joy and all these things? Um, certainly that is good too, and it will continue into heaven. And there we will enjoy these things with and in the presence of our Lord. Uh, okay. Let's see. Um, but yes, the, the libertinism, I've not made much progress here <laughs> uh, in Bob Inc. Um, scripture avoids libertinism. That is every form of striving to make the flesh independent from and higher than the spirit. When for a time asceticism gains the upper hand in religion and morality and literature and art, sooner or later another school of thought always arises that glorifies natural life and moves easily to the other extreme. And I think I'm starting to swim in circles that um, are definitely moving in the other direction. And my only concern is that they, we, however you want to classify us, don't go to that other extreme. Um, at that point, sexuality is not merely restored. Uh, whoops restored to its rightful place, but often it is loosened from all moral restraints. People hoist the slogan of the emancipation of the flesh and indulge every desire. Right, so sexuality and the sex act itself is just elevated above all and um, released from all restraints, and so you can get into that sort of error also. Uh, I don't think anybody I know is going to go in that direction and you know those who are talking more about the goods of of you know marriage and sex and and working hard and uh, seeing everything is done to the glory of god i don't think anybody who's honestly seeking that is in danger of um you know letting sexual restraint go go free but you could see how this could be misconstrued and and, and lead to that uh if the earth and creation is and all this is so good you, you forget that there's still a priority. You forget that there's still, you know, Bible reading and prayer and Bible study and, you know, disengaging from all of these things that you could do and enjoy but for the um, necessary daily bread that without which that everything else you're going to do is going to become sour to you and it's not going to be done unto the Lord anymore. Um, 
And I really do think, above all, we should delight in fellowshipping with the Lord and with his people, praying to God, studying his word, pouring over his word. Um, I don't think it should be controversial to say that that ought to give us the greatest delight. But just because it gives us the greatest delight doesn't mean that we cannot and should not delight in, in everything that we do. And nor does it mean that everything else that we're going to do is going to disappear in heaven. Just because there's differing glories doesn't mean that only the brightest glory is glory. It's all glory. <laughs> uh, oh, man, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I mean, I don't have anything that wouldn't seem strange, you know, like just because this pizza doesn't have the exact toppings on it that you want doesn't mean it isn't glorious. It's pizza, <laughs> right? It's pizza. It's all good. Um, it's all glory. Some things are more glorious than others, but it's all glory. It's all good. And, um, you know, I think, I think the argument or the idea uh, is that, well, isn't God himself enough? Isn't God himself our ultimate and full and final and total complete satisfaction. Well, there's two things to say to that. One, we're not there yet, clearly, because we've got this earth and we've got things to do. But beyond that, I just want to go back to the garden. And it wasn't good for man to be alone. For creatures, we're not God, okay? For creatures, God and the creaturely things that he makes for us, and for himself, first and foremost, but for us to rule and to reign over, uh, are, again, part of the blessing and enjoyment of God himself. It's not God himself. I'm not making a pantheistic error here. I'm not saying that the desk I'm sitting at is God. Um, but I have a body. I'm flesh and bones, and I will be in heaven too. It'll be a glorified body. It'll be a heavenly body, but it will be a body. Um, and I will be a creature still. And so I belong in and need God's creation. Um, you know, other, otherwise, we, we wouldn't have or keep bodies in heaven and we wouldn't, you know, it, it, we would just jettison it. Uh, like the rocket that just went off. It'll be like a booster engine to get us up to heaven and then we'll just shed our bodies. <laughs> uh, but that's simply not the case. And I, I just think we have to be very careful because it's so easy and it sounds so holy and pious to just say, well, you know, and, and this is the danger with some of the teaching that's going on and, and, and they're getting things so twisted uh, that's allowing feminism and all these other things to, to leak in and undermining the, the family. Um, well, this is passing away. There's not going to be marriage in heaven. In fact, heaven's just going to be with God and, and, and seeing him face to face. And so all this other stuff is, is, is fleeting and passing. And so it needs to start taking on that heavenly trajectory even now, because we are in the last days after all, and we've got good covenant theology. And so let's start ushering in the kingdom now or something like that. And I'm saying, I, first of all, I don't even agree with that vision of the kingdom of heaven. And secondly, even if that's true or has more truth than I'm willing to give to it, that's not what we're called to at this moment. We're not there yet. That's like in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, giving up temple worship and not sacrificing the animals because, well, you know, 
the real sacrifice is coming. It's going to be here soon. And so let's just start worshiping with that greater intimacy right now. You cannot do that. It's not faithful. It's not biblical. It's unfaithful. All right. Um, back to Bob Inc. He just talks about, well, I'll just read. In the New Testament, this commandment is impressed upon believers even more strongly by reminding them that their bodies are members of Christ. You can't just be sexually promiscuous. Destined for the resurrection and temples of the Holy Spirit. With this holiness in which not only the soul, but also the body participates, all harlotry, all unchastity in word and gesture, in thought and desire are in perpetual conflict. Marriage is entirely and wholly a sacred institution of God, and within marriage, sexual relations are also bound to the moral law. God's law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and all of His commandments in Scripture that apply to us in the New Covenant um, is, 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 bound, is necessary boundaries for our delight and for our good. It gives shape to it. Um, shapeliness is good we we recognize that everywhere except when it comes to god's law it seems um you want your cake to uh, not be lumpy and lopsided and the icing all on one side and missing on the other you want it to look and fit in a perfect harmony um this book shelf that i have on top of my desk here that um the kids pop-up built uh, the shelves are level. <laughs> uh, and if he did not build it that way, they would not be good shelves. Everything would slide to one side or fall out. And if it wasn't sturdy and stable, there's a shape, there's a structure to it that in fact even makes it a bookshelf. And so there's a shape and a uh, mold, a conformity that makes marriage a marriage. And that shape and that mold and that structure is one man and one woman living for the glory of God with the man representing Christ and the woman representing the church. And from that union come children and it's fruitful. That is the true and only shape of marriage. Otherwise, it's not a shape any more than I can hold up my cell phone and call it a, a bookcase. Um, so gay marriage and cohabitation and... Uh, Thruplets and all this crap is not marriage. It doesn't even really um, resemble it hardly. Uh, the intimacy is gone. You know, it might be like this bookshelf is made of wood. You might say these things are still uh, of a derivative or a, a terrible offshoot of, of what marriage is supposed to be, but it is not marriage. It is not a Christian family in the Christian household. And so now he talks about this, um, procreation, unity, and diversity in the family. And he says, The lofty moral ex uh, significance of procreation also comes to expression in the fact that it bestows existence upon a human being. Uh, further down he says, What the poet saying regarding the miraculous way in which he was made in, in secret, and it's talking about uh, David in the Psalms, I believe, and was designed with artistic craftsmanship in the lowest parts of the earth, that is still the culmination of all wisdom. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. The mystery of, of life and how God creates life. 
The origin and essence of life are hidden. The origin of the soul with all its power is hidden. The effective activity proceeding from the father and the mother is hidden. The cause of fertility and infertility is hidden. And the reason for the correspondence and differentiation between parents and children and among children themselves is hidden. It's all one immense riddle. It's all to the creative power of God. And we just, just worship him and praise him for it. Uh, and the love between the, the husband and wife and from that union comes children. It's just, it's all a great mystery. And even though we've got much scientific advancement, even uh, since Bobbing wrote this, it still really is a mystery at essence, isn't it? And it's, it's amazing. Just like all of God's creation, we learn more and more, and it reveals more and more the layers of God's glory, but it, 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 His glory is infinite. We will never exhaust even one aspect of God's creation and say, ah, now I have mastered it. Now I know exactly how He did it. Um, there's just limitless layers of, of the glory of God for us to, to uncover. And we're still going to be growing in our capacity in heaven. But don't get me on the uh, full bucket heaven analogy. I did that in uh, class one time. And the youngest guy in my class, he, he just he could not quite grasp that. That you can have a cup that's full but ever expanding and ever filling and we're always full, but we're always increasing also in our knowledge of God and his glory in heaven. But it's such a beautiful contemplation. Um, okay. Now this, this is where Bobbing is really good. Um, you exist. If you are hearing this, you exist within a structure that you didn't ask for and didn't choose, but it was foisted upon you. And so, your hyper-libertarianism is just bunk. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the absolute rogue renegade individualism is something that you can cry for, but it's not reality. It isn't true. You can make all the arguments in the world for it that you want, but it doesn't change the fact that you were born <laughs> and that you were born outside of your control, that somebody made you that a mommy and a daddy got together and made love and from that you came and you were born into that family or perhaps given up for adoption or born into a, a you know a, a sadder situation an orphanage or whatever but you were born into something you were born from two people and you were created by god and when you're born, you're bestowed citizenship in a nation that you did not choose with inherent advantages and disadvantages that you did not ask for. Red, yellow, black, or white skin and all of that. And this is a good conversation for so many things going on in our nation right now. You didn't choose it. Whether you think you got a fair shake or not, you have the hand that you were dealt by God Almighty. You can be sour like you're sucking on a lemon all, all the time about it. Or you can thank God that you're alive. You can thank God for what he's given you, as difficult as it may be, as difficult as it has been for some people born into absolute abject poverty and pain and suffering and slavery and truly being mistreated, born into being in a situation of being mistreated and wickedness. Never mind abortion, which is not being born and just being murdered in the womb, but being born into absolute suffering and pain. 
how can a good God do this? Well, because we're all born sinners. We're all born dead in our trespasses and sins because we're all from Adam. You didn't choose that either, but it is a reality that you cannot change no matter how much you bluster and hate it. It's a reality. And you know, you know logically that it makes perfect sense, that it is absolutely just and reasonable, right? A bad tree doesn't produce good fruit, and, a, and, and, and good fruit comes from a good tree, but bad fruit comes from a bad tree. And so you are from Adam who went bad as it can go by rebelling against God, ultimately. Obviously, there's lots of great, 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 great grandparents in between, but you understand this whether you like it or not, God has chosen Adam as our federal head and representative in the covenant. And simply by natural descent, you are from the loins of Adam. If he is the first human tree in the family tree, you are a branch of Adam. We all are. And so we're all born sinful and sinners and you can hate it all you want but you're born into it and you you can you can go to hell hating it and hate it forever but it's not going to change reality so the fact that you're alive and not punished for your sins in adam already is a grace and mercy of god and should lead us to call out to him in faith and repentance that we can be saved and that there is his son jesus christ who takes away all of our sins so that we can be grafted into him into that tree and to guide himself for everlasting life and to have our sins nailed on the tree at Gethsemane, the cross, where Jesus died and took away the sins of the world for all who repent and trust and believe in him. I didn't know I was going to start preaching there so much, but um, this shows the unity. There's not multiple races. There's only one human race. There's different, different ethnicities, but we all meet at the top. It's not us versus them. It's not black versus white. It's not the haves versus the have-nots, even, at the most fundamental level. That's why the Bible talks about masters and slaves, and slaves obeying your masters, even the ones that are, that are not so kind. Do it, because the Lord says... It is right, and it is good, and you will be blessed, and great will your reward be in heaven. Obviously, if you can get your freedom, obviously if a woman is married and her husband is brutally beating her, she isn't just supposed to be a doormat and take it until she dies. Not denying any of that, but we are to submit even to injustices. There's injustices everywhere. Everybody at some level in this messed up world is suffering some kind of slight or injustice. And the fact that we bristle and freak out at even the smallest ones tells you how little gospel, how little grace, how little forgiveness, how little um, patience and long-suffering and the fruit of the Spirit that we have collectively as a nation. And it's true, I get cut off in traffic and I'm, you know, certainly in my heart, at the very least, insults and not kind four-letter words are, are bubbling out and bubbling up. <laughs> And uh, boy, if there's murder in my heart, it's, it's road rage. And um, over, yeah, something that I guess could be potentially dangerous, but usually it's just somebody cutting it a little too close in front of me or pulling out in front of me so i got to hit the brake more than I want to. You know, get over yourself, Thomas. You know what I mean? Like, just, just get over yourself. Just, okay, that wasn't very nice of them, but whatever. <laughs> 
You know, now there, there are much more dangerous and serious things for sure. And, and we look at what has happened in our country and this George Floyd thing. And no matter what that particular cop's exact intentions were, whatever he it was, what he did was bad and wrong and terrible. And racism is bad, whether it's white hating blacks or blacks hating whites or any other ethnicity. But my goodness, until we get to a point where we can say, look, do you see the suffering that you've caused me? And we can say, yes, and I'm sorry. And then it said, it, it, it said, thank you. And we can try to build up and move forward rather than just saying, if you don't condemn this sin over here that you have nothing to do with the exact way I want you to, then you're just as bad and you're racist and any apologies you made to me personally mean nothing. Until we can move past that, we're not going to get anywhere. It's all just bitter hatred. But Bobby brings out this connectivity that we all have. From your earliest existence, from the moment of your conception, you are the fruit of communion. Think about that. We are the fruit of communion. Our existence comes from sex. And is meant to be, and I would still say ordinarily, a sexual union where that man and that woman had had joy in each other maybe not always in a righteous fully righteous way of course but a joyful union you are the fruit of communion and exist only in and through such community that community did not come into existence through your will but existed already long before you gave you life nurtured and sustained you you're not a self-independent person who can just tell everybody to go you know, give them the bird and, and, and fly away here. Um, you had to be raised and reared. My son Peter is six years old and he still has so much that he, you know, needs from us as parents. Do we ever not need each other? Clearly we do. Scripture made that clear. We just talked about that earlier in this podcast too in, in, in a different way, a different context. We always need each other. But, but to even to get to that point of you know, I can live on my own and be independent. You really can't do that until I would say at least you're a teenager. Like physically and mentally and emotionally, you 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 can't even begin to do it. Um, you couldn't even feed yourself the first at least several years of your life. It is a community of members of parents and children of brothers and sisters who belong together and live together by divine will and in which we are members and participants apart from any consent on our on our part by virtue of the same divine will. And so that cry of unbelief and hatred of God, you know, that just says, well, I didn't ask to be made like this. Or I didn't even ask to be made. That's just such a hardened heart. It, it, it can never accept the way things are because it doesn't accept that person doesn't accept their very own existence. It's like, well, you had to ask my permission before you made me God. What are you talking about? That's a logical contradiction. You can't exist until you exist. And so for these people, if this groveling God just made you for an instant just to say, hey, it's up to you. I made you just to ask you if it's okay if I can keep making you and drop you into the earth here. You would still complain. I didn't ask to be asked this. Well, you know, that's the point. You're a creature. You're not God. You're not eternal. You're not self-existent. You're not. You're born into something. 
that's much greater than you, by the one who made you, by the one who is self-existent and eternal and unchangeable, God. And so you can bow the knee to that and accept that and receive that and see the glory and the blessings and the riches that Christianity has because it is the way and the truth and the light in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is beautiful if you would just get over yourself, repent of your sin, and come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And at the very heart of that is the Christian family. And the Christian family is what is needed among Christians, self-professed Christians, a faithful Christian family. Many of them is what is needed in our own Christian communities more than anything. And of course, to get that, you're going to have to read your Bibles and, and grow in faith and godliness. So in another way, we could say it's, it's applying God's word, especially in that area that's needed more than anything. And where is that going to be heard? But, if it, you know, in the church is where it's got to be. The church, the people of God, the ministers, the pastors have to be godly themselves. That's why you got to rule your own household well to be an elder. That's why that's like one of the preeminent qualifications of, of being an elder. So that you can live by uh, example and not just words because your words are empty words. If you can't actually back up your words by carrying out your own teaching in your actual life and practice with leading your family well. With obedient, believing children are not insubordinate as we are required to have as elders but boy we need that we need that so badly and that'll help fix all this sinful wickedness and wretchedness that we're seeing in our community and our cultures and the race wars so-called race wars and the bloodshed and the hatred and the rioting and, and and the police being unable to even quell the rioters because instead they're taking knees with them now, I grant there's a distinction between protesters and rioters and that the idea is that they are taking a knee with the protesters, but, you know, they want conservatives to make this really neat and tidy line between the protesters and rioters. And I, I think reality, again, is saying there's not that neat and tidy line. Now, is that the fault of the actual godly protester who never would ever think about, um, you know, a violent uprising who would condemn that as quickly as he would condemn the murdering of George Floyd? Uh, no, it's not that person's fault. But the fact of the matter is, if you're if you're so entangled with a movement that is 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 getting so leading to so much more violence, you're just, you, you you can't do that. It, it it stinks, but you can't. You're gonna have to you know vet every single person you're protesting with, and maybe have smaller protests to help keep it from this raging violence. Now let's continue in Bavink here. He says, the significance of the family for the individual is increased still further by the fact that the unity of the family unfolds into the richest diversity. Every family has its own features. So from that unity comes diversity. And remember that diversity and unity is the Trinity and the family reflects that as well. Every family bears its own character and all of its members have several features in common. There exists among them a community of kinship, but also a sharing of the life of the soul. How this happens, we don't know. But there is a law whereby traits of parents are inherited by children and grandchildren. Indeed, even from generation to generation and from century to century. The apple does not fall far from the tree, and a good child imitates his father. A community of kinship and of souls, of dispositions and interests, of various material and spiritual treasures keeps members of a family together, despite occasionally being separated by distance and distinguishes it together from all other homes and families. 
and every member of the family lives something of ourselves. The honor and the shame that others accord them we attribute, attribute to ourselves. In former times, this sense of family was far stronger than it is today. And I would say 100 years later, it's even weaker than it was in Bobbing's day. And it was the source of all sorts of obligations. You had family duties, whether you liked your family or not, whether you're a Christian or not, more so than we do today, typically. But it still continues to live on among us. It's in our blood where it cannot walk upright. It crawls about. It betrays its strength even in its opposite into which it occasionally changes. The wound inflicted upon the sense of family causes more pain than any other. There's no hatred more fierce than fraternal hatred. There are no sadder quarrels than those between family members. Such quarrels harden into feuds. The proverb expresses bitterness that says, a person can choose his friends, but he is stuck with his family. And that's true, but Bobbing says still, this unity includes a remarkable diversity. The community of the family brings with it a treasury of relationships and qualities. The relation of husband and wife, of parents and children, of brothers and sisters hardly exhausts this treasury. For the relationship that a husband enjoys with his wife is altogether different then the relationship a wife enjoys with her husband and the relationship of parents with children differs from those between father and mother and the children together and between each parent with each child. And in this way, the same family life proceeds in even greater specialization at the number of, as the number of members expands. Um, this is the case not only with the relationships, but also with the qualities belonging to each family member, masculine and feminine qualities, physical and spiritual strength, intellectual, volitional, and emotional gifts, age and youth, strength and weakness, authority and obedience, affection and love, unity and diversity of interest. All of these come together in one family, unified and distinguished and blended together. What a blessing a wedding is. Families are gaining family members. What a blessing children are. That unity is producing more diversity, which falls back into greater harmony and unity. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous when sin doesn't mess it all up. Then it gets ugly. And that's what's happened, is people have seen the family fall apart because of sin, and so they've abandoned the good thing, which is the family. They've thrown the family out with the dirty family's, you know, bathwater. We can't do that. The solution is, is to turn back to the Word of God the family. That's that's the only way forward. The only way forward that leads to, to life, to good things. And seeing in and through Christ. And that relationship between the church and Christ, which is what marriage pictures. And so do we add, you know, is it possible to have earthly marriage so messed up in a given society and expect it to have a good picture a fellowship with God because marriage pictures Christ in the church. If marriage is very messed up among Christians, and sadly often it is, if the Christian family is all messed up, then the, the, the understanding of our relationship to God is messed up. They're, they're going to feed off of one another. They're either going to mutually reinforce and strengthen one another or they're going to mutually destroy one another. And so those who have really bad theology on sexuality and marriage have a bad theology and understanding of their relationship to God, and many of them probably don't have a genuine relationship with God if their errors are of a certain severity, right? If, if they're calling themselves gay Christians and openly practicing homosexual, homosexuality, 
Uh, it's clear the Bible says that's not a believer, uh, but then you got those who this gay celibate Christianity going on, and it's like trying to make a halfway point. Well, their understanding of God and Christ and our relationship to Him and that covenant bond is is just wrong. And so they can have all the best PCA Presbyterian covenant theology at Covenant Seminary, RTS, or whatever. It's done them no good because they've poured into the mold of covenant theology filth, sin, impure alloys, and messed it all up. That's why I said, I think, at the beginning of, of these recordings that it is more important to get your theology of what it means to be a man or a woman right and applying that to marriage right, honestly, than it does even to get the, something like covenant theology right. Because it's just so fundamental and basic. It's something that you would think, at one level, you wouldn't even have to ask or think about at least at the degrees of which we are now, it's such obvious things like you can't identify as a gay person and be a Christian. But yet here we are. Um, yeah, this age and youth, I think I read through all those. Um, all right, one more section here I'm gonna get through and then I have to pause it and start the second section. The family's nurturing power for parents. All these priceless qualities constitute the home as the first and best school of nurture that exists on earth. The home is the best school. True enough, there are miserable families where one can speak only of a nurture unto sin and iniquity. That's sad. Surely we should be grateful for the civil authority whereby in some cases the children are removed from such parental influence and entrusted to public institutions for their nurture. Such is indeed terrible, but sometimes necessary when the children need to be protected against their own parents, their natural protectors. Yeah, that's terrible when that happens. Um, and it's terrible when the parents willingly just abandon their posts. Um, nowhere are that unity and community, that diversity and exchange, that forming element and that nurturing power encountered so richly as in the sphere of the family. In this respect, no art can improve upon nature, no science can improve upon life. So when some would point to miserable family conditions as an argument for gradually removing the nurture of the children from the parents and had handing it over to the state, at that point, let all the defenders and friends of the family join hands and cooperate unitedly to maintain and reform family life. That's what we need, a reformation of the family, which forms the healthy, natural foundation of society and church and state. If you want to see politics and the culture redeemed from these riots, get your household in order, get your own soul in order, get right with God, get a wife, get some kids and grow them and raise them in the Lord and then interact with others in the world, be salt and light to them and we got to start from the ground up. Right now we're desperately clinging on to Donald J. Trump who is, God bless the good that he's done but I'm sorry, I don't know how you can possibly believe he's a genuine believer. He certainly has been immoral in the past. He's definitely braggadocious, but I'm so thankful for him. And he's been the best president I've had in my lifetime. And he's doing a tremendous lot of good that most even Christian leaders cannot do today. And it's also a sin to be weak-willed and have no backbone. And he's not lacking for that, thank God. Um, but when it, we're at the point where he is the one who's supposed to save our bacon as Christians and keep our right to worship, you know we are upside down right now. And not because I'm against political reform and strength, but because 
this is what it's come to, to even get a semblance of that. Pray to God that he would truly work in Trump's heart to save him from his sins and, 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 and keep giving him wise counselors and, and that he would keep, overall, I think, doing a pretty good job. And, and let me wrap up quickly here until the next section. But I think it says, And let a vigorous protest be sounded against all those who thorough, thorough, yeah, through immoral entertainment, low art, cheap novels, and sensuous performances violate the honor of marriage and undermine the foundations of the family. All right, I'm going to pause it, start the next section, and hopefully wrap it up in 30 minutes. All right, so we're going to continue now with part two. And... I don't make any promises, but I hope this is a lot quicker to get through the rest of the chapter here. All right. Um, yeah, this this is pretty true. Um, it says, far and away, most men and women are not at all fully prepared for nurturing, nurturing their children, uh, when they enter into marriage, but they obtain the richest experience only once they have become married. Many a husband... Many a husband is a picture of clumsiness at the birth of his first child. And what do many wives know about care and nurture when they clasp their firstborn to their heart? But both learn in the school of life, and the experience of the family nurtures them further along as well, better than any educational institution could. Cooking school and family classes can render excellent assistance when past upbringing has been lacking. But the best homemakers and the best mothers come from families and are formed by the family itself, because that's the natural place to get it. The family is a school for the children, but in the first place, it is a school for the parents. And there's a lot of good stuff in that. I mean, no matter how good of parents you have, there's going to be shortcomings in them. I'm going to fail my children in some way, shape, or form in some area, in some aspect. Probably more than I want. Well, I don't want any, but you know what I mean. More than I'll ever realize. And, you know, I could look at my parents and say there's many good things they did. There's some things that I wish they did differently or did more of or whatever. And again, what was the answer? Not to just, you know, air out our grievances all day long and constantly and only sound that note, but to be thankful for the parents that we did have to the degree that they did help us. And where we need more help and didn't get it because our parents didn't find it needful or worthwhile or weren't interested in us in that way as they should have been or because of our own in initiative was lacking or a combination of both or whatever the case may be we got to move forward we're still alive you know we're a victim culture and we are a culture that just cries about every slight and there's a place to be frustrated and a place to air those things out and a place so that you don't get um constantly dragged through the mud and when there's real sin in the church it should be spoken out against and when there's sin in the world and if there is societal structural evils and force it should be called to be torn apart but not in a violent revolution type way um, not in a way that's going to do more harm than good and not in a way that says it must come down no matter the cost because we could apply that to anything. What's a super safe, conservative, typically issue? Abortion. Again, do we just burn down every abortion clinic, kill every woman that goes to get the abortion, or every man, or every you know doctor that performs the abortion? You know, we're going to end this one way or another. It doesn't work like that. It'd be more evil to do that, cause more damage, more death, more destruction, and doesn't change hearts. 
reform through the government, through protests, through uh, preaching and teaching at uh, abortion mills and clinics, uh, crisis family pregnancy centers. Uh, these are the ways you work toward that in a way that is uh, righteous. Um, in the name of a good cause, you can do more damage, do more harm than good. You can even eliminate the evil thing in a way that causes more damage than good. Um, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the whole arguments with the Civil War and the issue of slavery is, you know, okay, slavery needs to end, but is killing each other over it the way to go about it? But that's, that's just to, to, to even question that at this point is, is too radical a thought for most. Um, anyhow, the fact that the family is a school for the parents first and foremost is, uh, is actually good to hear that because you can get sometimes this impression that as a parent, if you don't have it all together, um, shame on you and you're going to be useless. And, you know, some are even like, well, then you can't even get married. Yeah, well, no one's ever fully ready. Again, there needs to be some basic competency and, and signs that you're going to be moving in the right direction, um, that you're not going to be overwhelmed and fall apart and end in divorce. But don't sweat it if you're a woman and you can't cook 100 different meals to perfection, or if you're a man and you can't, um, you know, build uh, a table, a, a dining room table from, from scratch with your hands, or you can't you've never led in family worship before so you can't you know you don't like speaking in public you're a quiet man and so even the thought of trying to teach something is just mortifying to you you know don't sweat it god gives grace you work toward that and if there's a deficiency in a certain area you know take it as an opportunity to strengthen yourself in that and there's so many things that i have to strengthen myself in and I have to even strengthen myself in areas that you would hope and think, and that maybe are my quote unquote, unquote strengths. Uh, someone on uh, the Genevan Commons page uh, shared a great little online booklet of a synthetic way to study the Bible. And I'm like, this is what I need to do. It's talking about reading through Genesis. Just read through it straight, one, basically one sitting or at least in one day. And when you're done, read it again and maybe read it a third time. And until you've mastered it, move on to the next book of the Bible or, or move on only after you've mastered it and go through the whole Bible like that. I'm like, I, I've really got to try this and do this because you can go to seminary and get so much study that, um, you know, just the straight through reading of the English Bible is something that uh, doesn't happen as, as often as it ought. So we always have room to improve. That's, that's my point. So don't, if you're imperfect and a sinner, so am I, and so are we all, and, and, and it doesn't disqualify you from marriage. <laughs> um, so take heart. Uh, he says, nor is the family nowadays any longer um, an industrial commune that alone provides entirely for its own subsistence. So even in his day, that wasn't true anymore. And, you know, C.R. Wiley is a minister in the PCA who's written on this and talks about this a lot on social media and others. Um, of, of bringing some of the industry back to the home. You know, what, what, is that, what does that look like? Well, it could be 
homeschooling. It could be uh, making things with your own hands to sell or just making your own you know, whatever, you know, furniture. The wife crochets or knits and can make clothing for her children. Uh, the husband can build things and make things that provide uh, goods for his, for his home. It doesn't even have to necessarily be something that is built with your hands. Uh, it could be a whole host of, of different things that, you know, you could, you could have a, um, I think they call it productive property, you know, something that also gives you an earning and an income. So you teach piano lessons from home uh, or uh, you, you just you, you teach classes maybe even from your home or these days you can teach classes online and you know, I guess some might argue that's a job from home rather than a productive property in your home. Of course if you're your own boss and you're running it like a tutoring thing and doing it from your home that would I think qualify as a productive property because you're not going through you're not dependent upon somebody else you're getting your own students and so having some self-sufficiency growing your own crops your own food you know we've started a little bit of a garden more fruits than vegetables really at this point some blackberries and some avocado trees and some banana trees because we're in florida here so it's more tropical um, and we do have some tomatoes that are really flourishing um, starting to uh, and i'd like to do more stuff with that and uh, you know just, just just moving the needle back in that direction a little bit you know i cut my own grass which may not sound special and is not but there's so many people who don't, even in my own suburb here, there's so many people who just, they hire somebody to do it. Um, cleaning your own house, you know, doing some things for yourself rather than hiring someone else to do it or just never getting done or being done sloppily at best. Um, you know, this also not only cr creates, you know, a work ethic, but a sense of uh, pride and ownership in your own home and your own land with your own people, that is your family, your wife and your children. And when they're all contributing, working together, you're building something together as a family, which is going to teach them as children lessons and you yourself as, as an adult lessons about how to relate to other people and other families and in the workplace and in the workforce. It, it, it's teaching and training how to do that. Because what are you doing in society or in work? You're building things, you're making things, you're doing things, you're teaching things. Um, yeah, and when society, as fragile as it can be, collapses and goes crazy, what are we going to do if we don't have any ability to do some things for ourselves at home? That's what's been on my heart and mind a lot lately and trying to get better at that. Um, let's see. Even with respect to property, the husband no longer enjoys such sovereign right as in earlier times. He cannot do with it as he pleases. In any case, life and customs and civil legislation are all moving in the direction of limiting the power of the husband in this respect. Uh, nevertheless, the husband is still the head of the family and is clothed with authority, not by virtue of the approval of his wife and his children, but on his own account by virtue of the right bestowed by God. From the husband proceeds the choice of marriage partner, the power of procreation, the establishment and maintenance of the family. He is still a priest insofar as he leads in prayer and in reading God's word and attends to the religious interest of his household. He is still instructor and teacher insofar as he provides leadership to his wife and children by means of greater wisdom, wider experience, and clearer judgment. He is still the head of his wife insofar as he dwells with her, not as a king over his subjects or a master over his slaves, but with understanding, honoring her as the weaker vessel, and as the stronger and bigger person he serves one who is weaker and smaller, loving and protecting her, even as Christ does for his church. Again, that connection to Christ and the church. He is our protector and provider. 
He is still the father of his children, the, the, the man, the husband, um, not only by virtue of begetting them, but also insofar as he goes before them and leads them, encourages and strengthens them, warns and disciplines them. You know, I can bark at my children and get onto them in a way that scares the snot out of them more effectively than Jocelyn. And honestly, it's just part of the female versus the male voice. A man raising his voice and getting gruff, that's just more scary. <laughs> Right? If a woman's hollering at me, I might be more you know, prone to laugh uh, than be afraid. But if some big, strong man is hollering at me, okay, I, I got to take this way more seriously. Uh, the power is just literally even in the voice there. I now, you know, well, I don't want to get down sidetracked again with men acting and walking and talking effeminately. It, it, well, whatever. Normal men invoke a lot more fear in the family, a healthy and righteous fear. It can, of course, fall into abuse and screaming and shouting and punishing your children in a wicked way. Not condoning that at all. But a firmness, being, as I heard put on Cross Politic one time, being hard, not on your family, but being hard for your family. Being a rock for them that, that sharpens and strengthens them. Yeah, that's somebody's got to do that, and God has called the Father to be the one that is instilling that first and foremost. He's still the representative, the man, the husband, the father of the family outside the home, insofar as he gives the family his name, his position, his honor, functioning by acting in its name and serving its interests. By the way, just came to me. That's also one of the reasons why women should not be preachers, because they cannot uh, invoke by their very being as a woman, the grandeur and the respect and the authority that the pulpit demands. How you like that? <laughs> it's true though. They cannot do it. And even when they try to do it, and some of them can become very good at, at playing the man. And I'm not saying there's never a place where a woman has to stand up to godless men and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? But notice it's women going to the men and encouraging them to be the men rather than the woman just pushing the men aside, taking the pulpit for herself and saying, now honor me like you are to honor the men. There's a, all the difference in the world between those two things. All the difference in the world. My wife one time went before elders over concern, but God forbid she ever thinks that she could be the elder or that she could stand in that position of authority. She is not the authority. But sometimes she has to rebuke me. Right? And I think you can legitimately use the word of, 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 of rebuke. It's, it's not merely a request, but it's a rebuke if you as the man are sinning against your family and your wife or anywhere. And the wife has to say something because you're too obtuse and stubborn to do anything. But that's way different than a rebuking as the one who is with the authority in the home. And that she does not do. And there's been a time or two where I've had to say, hey, you know, thank you for saying this. However, the way you say this and do this has to be done in a careful way in front of the family, in front of the kids. Um, right? Because the kids need to understand who the head of the home is. 
And that's not an evil thing. That's not a, a, a wife stomping thing or anything like that. And my wife doesn't receive it like that. And um, if you're not a Christian, I, you're going to have a harder time understanding any of this. But that's okay. I, I, I pray that God would open your eyes to see, yes, this, you know, we, we, we do understand this in all other avenues. Right? There's a boss and there's an employee, and an employee, even if his employer isn't treating him perfectly right in a given situation, would go to him uh, with some humility and deference, not as one hijacking the authority. The problem is, as a culture, collectively, we've lost that. I've seen that teaching at Christian schools. Some of the guys in there, just the slightest injustice, I hate this, I hate this, you know, just like, give me a break, man. Even if you're right, give me a break. This isn't the way to approach it. Anyway. Um, and even teaching, ah, I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> you know, teaching boys or men, whatever you want to say. I, I've taught like from seventh grade, I guess even sixth grade for a little bit, all the way up to like 11th, 12th grade. But even teaching the boys versus the girls or the young men versus the young women, there, there, there's a difference. There's a feminine response to you and there's a masculine response to you. And they're both growing in through their masculinity and femininity and uh especially the more i've thought about these things last year or two that i taught at the schools i, I really tried to be more conscious of that and and teach uh to the collective but when you get into discussions like we do in the, these omnibus classes which go through some of the great works and great books you, you get an opportunity to really dive into some of this stuff and help nurture the men's masculinity and the women's femininity or at least talk about it because for some they're having this idea and this conversation for the first time and it's really oh man it's exciting work and that's i do miss teaching a lot but um not that it's always goes smoothly <laughs> or that everybody agrees with me but over the course of a year it, it can get um you can develop some real uh, bonds with your students that, that can be quite quite great, quite good. And you can help them along and they help you along too. Alright, people can differ about whether he may be considered worthy of exercising the privilege of participation through political vote merely and simply as family leader. Now that's where some have said Bobbing changed on that later in his life and some who are insistent on head of household voting in the church and society and everywhere um, will you know take issue with with um bob Inc. here because he's open to and apparently later in life thought the female vote was okay um i i just have to do a lot more thinking on that the church that i'm at now we do head of household voting and i'm perfectly fine with that and i have no problems with that and i think it's a good thing um because why should the wife vote differently you know and uh, when the, head, the husband is the head um you know, in society, um, I can definitely see an argument just for for the men, for the heads of homes at least, uh, whether it's men or women, the heads of the families voting. Um, but I think there's more, um, I don't know what word you want to use. Uh, can, you, can you extend the family headship into the societal and civil headship in such a one-to-one -one way that it requires a vote in society for uh, the man or the head of the home only. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm not as certain on that, and uh, I certainly don't forbid my wife from voting. <laughs> I want her to vote in.
society. So anyway, Pavnik goes on, but when he does so, he exercises that privilege not as an individual, but as the head of the, of the family, right? It's, it's, and so in a word, the authority of the husband and father has in our society been significantly modified. Frankly, it's been weakened, right? It has received a far more rational, moral, and personal character, but it nonetheless continues in his modified form. In its essence, it is indestructible. You can't get rid of patriarchy, father rule. It's, it's built into it. God is the father who rules. He made man in his image. The father's rule one way or another, for good or for ill, no matter how hard you try to fight against it. The wife has a different place and task in the family. If the husband is the head, then the wife is the heart of the family. Uh, and that's a helpful way to put things, I think. The husband brings in the fruits of his labor. The wife distributes them according to each one's need. The husband gives, the wife receives. The husband establishes the family. The wife preserves the family. The husband conceives the child, but the life of the child is intimately developed along with that of the mother far more than with that of the father. The husband lives in society. The wife lives in her family. The husband exercises power directed outward and influence directed inward. The wife exercises power directed inward and influence directed outward. Now he's got quote marks around that last bit there. I'm not sure who or what he's quoting because it doesn't seem like he, you know, shows us anywhere in a footnote or anything. Maybe I'm an idiot and this is a famous quote that I don't know about or something. Um, but I think you could spend an hour or more just talking about what that means. The husband exercises power directed outward. And I think that would include power and inf um, uh, power and development beyond just the walls of the home and for the home but in uh, society as well and influence directed inward so by his um, power exhibited outward his influence is also felt inwardly in the home and and you know I think also you could say in, in the heart of the people strong leadership people's hearts gravitate toward that should the wife exercises power directed inward in the home a more heartfelt emotional tender power even her work outside of the home is, is is to be geared for the home and influence directed outward she influences her husband she influences society by her inward work in the home um you know that's in the context here, something along the lines of what I think he's, he's getting at there. And I think that's worth thinking about spending more time on, but I won't for now. Just as the husband is independent in his work and must nevertheless labor with a view to the interest of his family, so too the wife is independent within the family, but in such a way that she thereby remains bound to her husband through moral relationships. Uh, when according to his duty, the husband brings in the reward of his toil for for maintaining the family then the wife takes that reward in receipt and apportions it according to the need of each she organizes the household arranges and decorates the home there's that inward power and supplies the tone and texture of home life with unequal unequaled talent she magically transforms a cold room into a cozy place transforms modest income into sizable capital and despite all kinds of statistical predictions, she uses limited means to generate great things. 
She preserves order and peace within the family because she knows the character of each person and knows how to supply the needs of each. She protects the weak, tends the sick, comforts the sorrowing, sobers the proud, and restrains the strong, which would be including the husband. Far more than the husband, she lives along with all her children, and for the children, she is the source of comfort amid suffering, the source of counsel amid need, the refuge and fortress by day and by night. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and her children call her blessed. Proverbs 31, 10 through 28 talks about this. Both husband and wife nurture each other and are themselves formed by their children who were born from them. A marriage that remains childless is not thereby rendered purposeless, just as the life of an unmarried person need not be profitless. Um, it says, but just as marriage is, is to be recommended in general, so to a marriage blessed with children is what may generally be described as a customary normal marriage. By father, mother, and child, the family is built according to the aesthetic principle of beautiful symmetry. Um, Right. Marriage is blessed by God, be fruitful, multiply. He kind of goes over that again. In bringing forth and nurturing children, she demonstrates the genuineness and the power of her Christian faith. 1 Timothy 2.15, the woman shall be saved in and through childbearing. And he's taking that as with children and being fruitful and raising them and working. The fruit of her labor, the fruit of her hands, is in having children and raising children and working in the home. And for the husband, the apostles saying, the apostles saying possesses a similar significance. Um, and then he goes on uh, that children are the glory of marriage, the treasure of parents, the wealth of family life. They develop within their parents an entire cluster of virtues such as paternal, lo paternal love and maternal affection, devotion and self-denial, care for the future, involvement in society. I'm looking forward to when my kids are old enough to play ball games and sports and stuff because, for one, I might make some friends, <laughs> meet some people, uh, which is coming, you know, soon as Peter and Fletcher will both be in school next year and I hope to get them involved with uh, some soccer and some other sports. Uh, the art of nurturing. With their parents, children place restraints upon ambition, re reconcile the contrast, soften the differences, bring their souls ever closer together. Provide them with a common interest that lies outside of them and opens their eyes and hearts to their surroundings and for their posterity. As with living mirrors, they show their parents their own virtues and faults, force them to reform themselves, mitigating their criticisms and teaching them how hard it is to govern a person. Because it is hard. <laughs> so the family exerts a reforming power upon the parents. Who would recognize in the sensible, dutiful father the carefree youth of yesterday? And who would ever have imagined that the light-hearted girl would later be changed by her child into a mother who renders the greatest sacrifices with joyful acquiescence? The family transforms ambition into service, miserliness into munificence, the weak into strong, cowards into heroes, coarse fathers into mild lambs, tender-hearted mothers into ferocious lionesses. Imagine there were no marriage and family and humanity would, to use Calvin's crass expression, turn into a pigsty. Because we balance each other out and we need each other. We need to be sharpened by each other and we need to be um, both restrained by each other and allowed to uh, flourish by each other. A man needs to be allowed to be a man in his home. A woman needs to be allowed and encouraged to be a woman in her home. A wife and the man the husband. 
But the husband, as the husband, also needs the uh, restraint uh, and influence of his wife to keep him, uh, uh, oh, a lot of things, tender and level-headed. And the wife needs the husband to keep her uh, happy and joyful and on the course and encouraged. And there's so many other things, but we need each other. And if we can't get each other in the home, in home life, it's going to be hard to get that in, a lot of times even in church life and certainly out in the world. Um, the family's nurturing power for children misunderstood by recent theories of nurturing. So he gets into this long thing again about evolutionary development and uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it for the sake of time, but it is fascinating to see how much it aligns with modern day, you know, theories, you know, state-run education, send them off to the schools, give them a one-size-fits-all education, um, teach them more systematically, more artificially, right, outside of the home, more narrowly, just sitting in a desk and studying like you're in a cubicle. Um, it's like the exact opposite of like free-range child rearing. And I'm not really a fan of free-range child re rearing either. I'm actually still a fan of the schools more than homeschooling. I'll just say that straight up, even though I probably know more people who homeschool than do Christian schools. But I think you need a balance. And to me, the, 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 the best is the hybrid where you've got two or three days of rigorous sort of traditional academic in-classroom discussion where you're not just sitting around in your PJ studying, but you're in school and you're sitting still and you're listening and you're learning some restraints and discipline in that way. But then you got two or three days where you're at home and studying. Well, there's some hybrid models like that, but they're still a minority. Um, I taught in one for one year, which is really cool. Uh, then I taught in a traditional five-day Christian school for about three years, and now I'm not teaching at all, but our kids are going to a Lutheran school that's five days a week. But they do some really good things to help get them out of the classroom. They have a garden there. They have pets there. They have uh, chrysalis, you know, that turns into a, uh, the butterfly. And so they get them outside. They get them touching and involved with nature and creation, and they take a bunch of field trips and it's really awesome. It's really great. And so it's not just this five days, you know, where I taught last time, part of it was due to just financial restrictions and building restrictions. But those kids were in a, you know, like a, I don't even know if it was a 15 by 15 room with me. And by the end of the year, we probably had seven or eight students. <laughs> and uh, there, there's, there's no windows. And, uh, you know, I wasn't one to really decorate my classroom with a whole lot of beautiful stuff. <laughs> And so it was a little bit more than just bare white walls, but mostly they had to look at me all day <laughs> and listen to me talk and then do writing and assignments and do some reading. Now, I can enjoy that because I'm an introverted creature, I guess, um, but not everybody is, is as uh, comfortable with that as others. And even I can get, you know, weary of that. Now, when you're reading good books and have your imagination, I think it can go a long way, but... You know, I understand, you know, for some sooner, much sooner than others, they got to like go out and do something. So I try to go outside on lunch break and play football with them some. Uh, didn't do that as much probably as maybe I could have, but various other duties made that, that I couldn't do it as much. But, you know, we need body and soul, you know, mind and body, I guess is what I should say in this case, uh, exercise. You need your mind exercise, you need your body exercise, you need things that stimulate deep thinking exercise, you need things that stimulate 
mechanical skills exercised, um, working with your hands and just, just bodily discipline, like literal bodily discipline. Sometimes it's even literal hygiene for some of these kids I teach, but you know, how to run, how to throw a football or whatever, um, man, you know, having, you know, some coordination is, is key, especially for a man, but, <laughs> oh man, anyways, um, let's see. Bavink says, nevertheless, despite all this, there's no trace of any change in principle and direction. Before and afterward, the, the effort continues to be made to bring the entire physical and spiritual nurture of the child under the direction of technical experts. So say these evolutionists, right? Get technical, bring in the experts. You parents can't handle this. How dumb are you? Why are you homeschooling? You're impoverishing your children. Give us your children 35, 40 hours a week. We're the experts. And he just goes on and on about how, you know, yeah, this is not, not so good. <laughs> and when you have this evolutionary theory that we like evolve from animals and we're always in a state of becoming rather than a being, um, it just messes things up so that he says, but now cultural man has evolved with his consciousness and will, his apprehension and aptitude. And he has the calling to relieve nature of its work and to labor with his scientific insight for the improvement of the human race. Artificial selection continues today, having replaced natural selection. Therefore, we should let the pairing of spouses, the lifestyle of the pregnant woman, the physical and spiritual care of the child from his or her first day of life onward come to stand under the oversight, under the oversight and control of science. So you don't let kids be kids in their home anymore. It's all the expert in the science. Um, to get you further out of your lower, baser, animalistic desires. Which is also kind of saying that the elitists are more evolved than you are, so let us evolve your children for you. <laughs> um, they go on to point out all kinds of sort shortcomings in ordinary middle-class households. So they were talking about the ordinary middle-class way back in 1920 with Bob, I think, apparently. Parents have no time, opportunity, or aptitude for nurturing their children. They never study the subject. They're not well informed about hygiene, physiology, or psychology. Now, certainly there can be some school families that do a crummy job of it. Um, but it's hard to get more crummy as it stands today with the vast majority of public schools, sadly. And again, you're scared to do homeschooling? Take heart. Do it. It's almost certain that you're doing a better job than the public schools. And at least if you're a Christian doing it, you're trying to teach them from a Christian perspective. The public schools, most assuredly, almost certainly all of them aren't. Even if there's some Christian teachers out there, they're gagged at this point. So keep doing it, persevere, you know, be humble and uh, get help from those who know better. And those, if you're ever asked for help, be loving and kind and help them because you're gonna need help somehow too. We all need to help each other. Um, this is what one hears as people defend with complete seriousness the proposition that the state is the natural caregiver for children. I mean, again, they're, they're saying that 100 years ago. This is not a new thing. Not only the children who are poor, impoverished, neglected, mistreated, and inadequately cared for, but also the children of the rich and affluent. Only then will the ideal be achieved when all children belong to the state. And when the objection is raised that in large numbers and to a large extent parents will abuse such a calling given to the state and will transfer the entire burden to the government's shoulders, then people will in good answer in good conscience that this is not so bad. 
Not so bad. Give it to the state. We'll shoulder it for you. Again, that goes back to having some self-sufficiency. And where is it better to start than with your own children's upbringing and the command of God to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, right? It may not be such a command to, uh, in Scripture to uh, build your own house, like literally your own physical brick-and-mortar house or anything for that matter physically. Although I think you can see in wisdom there's, it's good to have some abilities even of that sort, of course, as you can develop it. But for sure you are called to nurture your children, to teach them, and to raise them. And so you better be, in one way or another, providing them a robust Christian education. If you have to do it at home, you do it. You make the sacrifice. If you can do it at a good Christian school, you do it. You don't send them to the government schools, not this government at least, that hates God by and large. Um, The first duty of the state is to maintain the human race. Children are the most expensive possession of a nation, the greatest national treasure, and the strongest national power. By caring for the children, the state sustains itself. In this way, everything is being arranged more and more so that the natural household nurture provided by the family is being nudged out by the systematic and artificial nurture through or on behalf of the state. If Bobbing saw that danger there back then, imagine the fruit of that now where we are weeping it, uh, weeping it, we are reaping it now. It has come upon us in these riots, a couple generations of giving our children over to the godless, God-hating state. And so now we have to be scared of the young people because we didn't love them like we should have, collectively speaking. Um, and they've been given over to savage wolves, to those of the spirit of Satan. <sighs> um, let me skip ahead. He says, look, we got to ask some questions here. Does this activity belong of raising your children, uh, nurturing them, teaching them, educating them? to the natural calling of the state, or is its assistance summoned and accepted only because existing needs either are not or cannot be met in any other way? Is the nurture that the government offers in its schools and institutions the entire nurture a child needs, or does it serve merely to supplement the nurture that is given to the child and the family? It's a supplement at most. To whom does the task of nurturing belong in the first place, to the family or to the state? It is the family. The school is in loco parentis, right, in place of the parent, but on really helping on loan from the parent. But don't loan your children out to the godless world. If you're going to send them out to good Christian schools, do that. That's fine. That's good. To the parents or to the experts, to practice or to theory, to life or to science. Well, obviously, you know where Bavink stands on that. Um, he says, just like the advocates of free love point with a certain relish to the many unhappy marriages in order to bring legal and lawful marriage into disrepute, so too defenders of government child care seize with eagerness upon all the miseries and faults of home child care to thereby strengthen their theory and to recommend it as the only real and adequate solution. They use examples of unhappy families not to press for reforming and improving family life, but on the contrary, to undermine the parental home as a nurturing institution and to build a new system of breeding and raising children on the ruins of the family. And that's the whole overthrow the patriarchy thing as well. The patriarchy father rule has, has 
left us in the mire and mistreated and abused us. So the women have to rise up and be the, the be the fathers now. But that's a contradiction in term, isn't it? Mothers being fathers, it doesn't work. So your solution is even more grotesque, right? It's like you have an unfaithful spouse, you're a man, your wife leaves you and you say, therefore all women are evil. So I'm gonna now marry a man. It makes about that much sense. There are terrible rotten apples who are pushing some, in general, in the zoom out perspective, biblical things about patriarchy, but in practice and when you zoom in on their teaching, um, you start to see the cracks and the crumbles and, and, and the wickedness that lies behind it. Their wicked hearts are using patriarchy as, as a, a way to express their wickedness. And that needs to be denounced and uh, fought against. But just like these racial issues, where you see a particular zoomed up close instance of police brutality and you should decry it and deplore it, that doesn't mean you should zoom out and see that everywhere else. It's, it, what's, what's writ small doesn't mean that it's writ large. Uh, that's such a, I'm sure there's a technical name for this fallacy, arguing from the uh, lesser to the greater illegitimately or something. I don't know, I, I, I taught logic and I can't remember all the fallacy names, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but we got to quit making that error. That's that's the bottom line. And he goes about how imbalanced these evolutionary theories are. Um, he says, look, family nurture oftentimes hasn't lived up to the expectation. And he says, look, I mean, even when it's done pretty well, well, He's, I think he's saying sometimes it's not done so well and Christian nurture throughout the centuries hasn't nurtured as much as it could. Uh, and he says, Christianity has contributed precious little to the improvement of the human race. Sin has not diminished, crime has not decreased, and the prisons are as full as they ever have been. Um, but he says, look, nurture is not omnipotent. It's not drawn from the facts of observation. We're all sinners, we're born sinners. He makes a good point. Um, he says, culture can surely contribute some improvement in terms of outward forms and social circumstances, and Christianity has always played a significant role in that. But human nature remains constant. Its capacities and powers constantly hover near average, and from the human heart constantly proceed the same evil thoughts and imaginations. Um, nurture is not omnipotent. It, it possesses great significance and far-reaching influence, but it is limited by the human nature a person receives and cannot alter internally. Even if you're born in, in the covenant, you're still born, you're, you are still born dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I, you know, I realize even some Presbyterians, they disagree with that. So um, I'm not going to speak um, as the only voice on that. But, uh, you know, I certainly think you have all of us agree that your children are still born sinful and sinners and wicked. Um, whether you want to regard them as regenerate from birth or not, which I don't think you should. But, um, and so, uh, nurture, like you, you can't get, you know, three or four faithful generations of nurture such that now our children will be born, born again. Or our children will now be born, um, you know, super holy. Like it's a video game where you breed different monsters, you know, Pokemon or uh, dragon warrior monsters or something like that. And, um, they're just leveled up, you know, we, we, we might be able to, to genetically be strong by, you know, having strong physical genes, but it doesn't quite work in the exact same way spiritually, you, you, you know, you can't um, 
get super holy. Like let's let's hold off on having children so that we can grow in sanctification, so that therefore our children will be born um, regenerate or something. It doesn't work like that. You got to start in one sense from square one. But and this is I think the great biblical teaching that you know all of our even Reformed Baptist brothers are missing. If you're a Christian household, they are born into the covenant, into the uh, sphere and arena in which the Holy Spirit is operative. And it is the Holy Spirit who causes us to be born again. And there are common operations of the Spirit. And I think we can rightly say covenantal operations of the Holy Spirit that our children are born into that do privilege them, that do give them a spiritual advantage. And I would say that all of our children born in the covenant do have a covenantal operation of the spirit that is i don't know what the best preposition is upon them on them uh, you could probably even say in them but I, I do want to be able to distinguish this of course from uh, you know regeneration but there is a spiritual work of god at work in and among and upon the covenant children, whether or not that will lead to regeneration and saving faith and repentance is ultimately in the hands of the sovereign almighty God, but he has appointed means of covenantal nurture unto that end. And we can debate how foolproof or exact that is. I am very much on the side that that we should expect, we should have a covenantal expectation that our children will be believers as we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that God will use that faithful gospel proclamation to work in their hearts and save their souls. And uh, we shouldn't see it as, you know, a crapshoot, luck of the draw kind of thing. Um, but that there's bona fide promises that God has made to children of believers and to the parents of those children in scripture that as we raise them faithfully he is faithful to bring them to salvation and we can talk about you know the rare exception some other time and if it's always the fault of the parent or not but um that should be our main covenant expectation because god has made these promises and we should be faithful and trusting and believing in him and that's not a health wealth and prosperity thing applied to the spiritual well-being of our children it's just looking at what scripture says and saying as anybody else is saved, we preach, repent, and believe in Jesus Christ. Love him and trust in him. Follow him. Obey him. You are a child of God insofar as you are born into the church and you're a baptized member of the community of God. Now, live unto the Lord. Serve him. Follow him. Obey him. Trust in him. Believe on him. And you are saved. And, and so Bavink does say, look, to demand from nurture that it must perfect humanity places upon parents an unbearable burden discourages them instead of supporting and fortifying them and engenders nothing but bitter disappointment. And I think we've swung so far in the other direction that parents don't even see their obligation to their children anymore and they don't even feel the burden at all. They sh there is a burden that ought to be felt by parents. I think that's honestly the cry of Christians today, that they need to feel the burden. Not the burden after it's too late and the children are apostates, but the burden while they still hope in time so that they will see the good promises of God and raise their children faithfully in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, he says, look, science has its place. 
Who would not gladly listen to the wise counsel that science provides concerning the lifestyle of the pregnant woman, about the care of both healthy and sick children, regarding the requirements for nutrition and clothing, about adequate sunlight and fresh air, about work and rest, the arrangement of desks and classrooms, uh, about overtaxing the brain, overstimulating the nerves, exercising the muscles, and about hundreds of other things besides. Now, look, I know today, especially a lot of us Christians even disagree with a lot of advice from the community on that. Um, shots and different things. I'm not quite as anti-government on that as some, but I do understand the fears and the warnings there too. And we have to be discerning in everything. But, you know, in general, we still go to WebMD online or listen to our doctors in the main uh, because they do know stuff by God's kindness and uh, it, it's benefited us. Um, but he says, science can never, never replace living. It can fortify living, guide and improve living, but never take its place. Life is found in the home and the Christian family. And all these other things are just uh, props and scaffolding that helps support it and strengthen it and beautify it. But it can't, you know, replace it. Um, it, it, you know, foundation is Jesus Christ, God and his word. But the family has to be strong, built on that foundation and everything else coming in there is just it may help and assist us in building up the family life but the family life is what we need as as the root as as the basis and he says just as agriculture owes many improvements to science but nevertheless remains dependent on nature on soil and climate on rain and sunshine on sowing and harvesting so child rearing can be assisted and supported by science but can never be appropriated by science or assigned to science even less so because all those sciences relating to child care are still deficient and repeatedly change their conclusions right it's, it's always evolving <laughs> um, so then he talks about the family and i'm sorry this is going to be two hours again i guess i'm incapable of doing it faster <laughs> The family as the nurturing institution par excellence. Um, he says the family is and remains the nurturing institution par excellence. Beyond every other institution it has this advantage, namely that it was not constructed and artificially assembled by man. A man chooses a woman to be his wife and a woman chooses a man to be her husband. But if things go well, they don't so much choose one another as they are chosen by each other. By means of a secret bond, in a manner ineffable, they are brought to each other. Children are then born from their intimate fellowship, but those children are granted to them, having a different sexuality, a different nature, a different disposition. Perhaps different than what the parents would have wished and, had it been up to them, would have given their children. The family is no fabrication of human hands. It is a gift of God bestowed according to his good pleasure. Even though the family has existed for centuries, we cannot create a likeness. It was, it is, and it will continue to be a gift, an institution that God alone sustains, right? Nature teaches that the child needs to be near and dear to the mom, especially. He's given the mother milk and the breast to feed the child, literally. And medicinal and scientific improvements with formula can't replace the real natural thing. It can supplement it. I mean, yes, it, it can literally, the child can literally live off of the formula. But but what do you get with that? Well, you lose a certain preciousness and a bond. And I'm, I, I, there's exceptions and, and issues where mothers can't produce milk. I'm not getting into that. I don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, like Bobbing is saying, when you take the child from the mother and, and, and from the family, from, from the father, from the family, from the home, 
if you try to raise it in the state or whatever, it's not the same thing. It's not where the child belongs. And frankly, the wife belongs in the home. And when she leaves that, she leaves her proper domain. And when the, the husband leaves his headship behind and providing and being bold and overcoming his fears and working hard for his family and being strong for them, he leaves his proper domain and things go very badly. Um, he goes on, therefore the nurture that takes place within the family possesses a very special character. Even as the family itself cannot be imitated, so too one cannot make a copy of family nurture. You can't duplicate it. You cannot recreate family nurture. And I want to dwell on this for a second, even though I'm running out of time. No school, no boarding school, no daycare center, no government institution can replace or improve upon the family. I heard that Christopher Hitchens, that famous atheist that Doug Wilson debated, um, C.S. Lewis, and some others all lost their Christian faith at boarding school, you know, where you, you're, you're gone, you're not in the home, you don't come home at night, you're at boarding school, and it's just like college way too soon when you're like 12 or whatever. But that can happen at a regular school too at a public school. The daycare center, all that is impoverishing the family and, and is, a, is not something that ordinarily at all should be done unless it's in a Christian environment. And even then, right? Like I, I, my kids are in school, Peter and Fletcher will be five days a week. Now, I would not do that if I didn't trust as much as I humanly can the school I'm sending them to. Unfortunately, there's not a good, to my belief, Reformed Presbyterian Christian school around here. So I go to the Lutherans, and this is a conservative Lutheran school, and I think that overall their theology is a lot better than, than and teaching and, and, and um, uh, ethos and, and so on uh, than a lot of these Napark denomination pastors and churches and schools. So I'm actually quite glad, quite glad that they are there. But I'm still on guard for any different doctrinal teachings and images of Jesus and different things like that. And I still, as the father especially, have the duty to instruct my children. Even if I have my wife at home uh, helping them with their homework more than I do, I still have a duty to oversee that and to at some level be involved with that and to ensure that my children are learning, especially about God and the things of God, but about everything in life, because we are to do all things to the glory of God. So every area of academic study, uh, every arena of life, every stage of life, I have to bear that on my shoulders as the father. But God gives strength and God gives grace and God is my father and helps me and helps us to do that. Um, that's why, you know, when I've taught at these Christian schools, you can see the kids that have parents that at least love them and are married and are somewhat happily married and are genuine Christians, those children tend to do well. And oftentimes, the kids have a hard time rising above uh, their parents. And if it's a broken home, it's a lot tougher plowing. And then you end up teaching something that the kids or their parents don't believe, and it can get on thin ice sometimes and, and you got to be careful but you are trying to teach them and raise them but you know what they need more uh, above all is a good mom and dad my goodness it's so sad to see and um, 
my heart really does ache for those 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 kids that don't have that because i i did have that by god's grace and if i didn't have that i know i would not be where i am right now i know i would not love god as much as i do and for all i know I may not even be a christian and um You know, I can't, as much as I would like maybe to be for some of these kids, a father to them, I can't literally be that. Um, I can help them. I can be a, sort of like a father figure to them, but it's not as good as the real thing. The good news is that they can have God himself as their heavenly father. But even that, of course, again, it's, it's a God has given earthly fathers, and that is still a, an ache that is missed even when you have God as your heavenly father. And it's just not the same. God, your heavenly father in his word doesn't teach you how to change the oil in your car and um, beckons unto you to, 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 to swing harder to hit that baseball to keep trying to pers persevere. So we need earthly fathers too. We can't just glaze over everything with, well, if you just read your Bibles a lot, it's as good as a father. Or if you don't have a mother, it's as good as having a mother who tenderly cares for you. It's a category error. And the Bible itself points outside of itself. God points outside of himself for us to find aid and help. And by outside of himself, you know what I mean, like outside of just direct communication and prayer with God, to our families, to our society, to our governors. And that isn't outside of God altogether because it's his authority. So it, 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 it there too, in another way you could say it is God says to look for his strength in the things that he's made, in the parents he's given you, the teachers, or these other things, or the governors and the pastors. Hopefully that makes sense. All right, I'm almost out of time here. He says, it is life itself that nurtures, that cultivates the rich, inexhaustible, multifaceted, magnificent life. The family is the school of life because it is the fountain and hearth of life. And we must have that, that family. And the next chapter is going to be on the family and society. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. Um, but, it, but a few other virtues, as I got a minute here, of the family, what it provides there, that a school cannot, even if it tries to, it cannot do it, or at least cannot do it as well. And he says, um, it consists, the family life, not only in instruction, but also in advice and warning leading and admonition, encouragement and comfort, solicitude and sharing. Everything in the home contributes to nurture. The hand of the father, the voice of the mother, the older brother, the younger sister, the infant in the bassinet, the sickly sibling, grandmother and grandchildren, uncles and aunts, guests and friends, prosperity and adversity, celebrations and mourning, crying. Sundays and work days, prayers and thanksgivings at mealtime, thanksgiving at mealtime, and the reading of God's word, morning devotions and evening devotions. Everything is serviceable for nurturing each other day by day, hour by hour, without plan, without appointment, without technique, all of which are set beforehand. Everything possesses power to nurture, apart from being able to analyze and calculate that power. Thousands of incidents, thousands of trivia, thousands of trifles all exert their influence. And parents, I pray that you understand that. It's not just the stated scheduled times of family worship for 20 minutes or 30 minutes a day, if you even have that. We need that. 
but it's every moment your children are watching. I have to remind myself of that. When we look back as, at our own childhood, we think of those sweet, tender, unplanned moments that just happened day by day, and they were sweet and they were blessed, and we need to make those memories of our children and pour into them and enjoy and love our children for God's glory. All right, that's the end. Two hours again. Sorry, hope you enjoyed it. Chapter 9, The Family and Society, next time. And maybe my wife will join, if not for Chapter 10. Thanks, and God bless.